It's Thursday, December 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In a rare bipartisan success, and with a little help from Jared Kushner, the Senate passed a criminal justice reform bill called the First Step Act. The bill is limited in scope, affecting only federal inmates, but addresses issues like mandatory minimum sentences, increased credit for good behavior, and makes some changes retroactive, which could send up to 4,000 prisoners home when the president signs the bill. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us for all the details. Next, look how far we've come in four years. Artificial intelligence image generation is getting scary. NVIDIA researchers released a paper and a video showing how impressive machine learning has gotten. The computer-generated faces they can make look very realistic, complete with wrinkles and all. James Vincent, reporter for The Verge, joins us to talk about how it is done and what's next for this tech. Finally, Facebook just can't seem to get out of the spotlight. It seems that they have spent the whole year apologizing for data and privacy slip-ups. This time, News has surfaced that they gave other big tech companies like Microsoft, Netflix, Spotify, Amazon, and Yahoo unprecedented access to users' personal data. Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed News reporter, joins us for the latest Facebook privacy slip-up. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I'm grateful to be here today with members of the House and Senate who have poured their time and they really have their heart and energy into the crucial issue of prison reform. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. We had a big bipartisan victory on criminal justice reform. There's been an effort to fight the war on drugs, bills lowering mandatory minimum sentences. It's been a long time coming for all this stuff. And the Senate just passed the bill margin of 87 to 12 to pass the First Step Act. Let's start off by talking about how this is a bipartisan victory. Everybody, well, for the most part, was behind this, including the president. And a lot of people are also giving a lot of credit to Jared Kushner for getting all of this through. This certainly was a big bipartisan win, something that we don't see a whole lot of these days. And it's been a long time coming, particularly on this issue for the past several years. There have been various efforts to get some legislation passed that would change the federal criminal justice system. And we saw before even the 2016 elections, there was momentum there and that kind of dropped off once the elections came around. And so we saw this cycle of there being progress made on this issue and then it not making it to a vote and there being complications or arguments over the specifics. So this really was a big moment and it did come as President Trump ended up supporting the bill publicly several weeks ago. And a lot of that was due to Jared Kushner's involvement on this issue. He's been pushing for this for months and months and months from inside the White House and has been super involved on the Hill and in getting this built where it is now. What kind of legwork was he doing? I mean, just contacting a lot of senators and members of Congress to get this passed, or did he help in crafting some of the wording on this? How involved was he? There are various roles that Kushner played. He was super involved with just talking with different senators and House members when there was a different version of the bill passed in the House earlier this year. He was super involved in figuring out how do we get this passed? What's important? What will the president back? He was super involved in eventually persuading the tough on crime president to right. publicly support this. And so he was super involved on the White House end of things as well, kind of behind the scenes, making sure everything was in place, making sure that the bill was in a good place for the president.
president to sign on to it. And so that was his role. But then obviously, of course, Senators Dick Durbin and Chuck Grassley were super involved on the Senate side, especially getting the bill to where it is right now, given the language and expanding it from the House version. As we said, it's called the First Step Act. So what does the bill do? How does it help reform the system? It the amount of time that prisoners can earn off of their sentence, both for good time credits, which means with, if they have good behavior, inmates can earn a certain amount of time off of their sentences, and that's been expanded slightly. It also allows for incentives. So if, if a prisoner decides to participate in rehabilitation programs that are designed to help them prepare to re-enter society and re-enter the workforce, they can also earn additional time off of their sentence. And so those are two big points in this bill, but there are also items that require that prisoners be placed within 500 miles of family. And it outlaws shackling during childbirth, which is something that there were cases of. And it also mandates that women prisoners be provided sanitary napkins when they need them, which has also not been the case in many instances. It also reduces some mandatory minimum sentences, which is a big deal for a lot of reform advocates. So instead of a third strike penalty of a life sentence, that's been minimized to just 25 five years and then for certain drug offenses. And there there are other instances of that. There's a lot of interesting things going on in this. You were talking about the good time credits and everything. It used to be 47 days per year that they could get credit for. They bumped that up to 54. Mm -hmm. A lot of these changes apply retroactively. So they're saying that as many as 4,000 prisoners could qualify for early release the day the bill goes into effect. The mandatory minimum sentences that could affect nearly 2,600 inmates. A lot of people are saying this is just a small step because it only applies on the federal level. I think there's some 87% of inmates incarcerated mm-hmm. in the U.S. are in like state facilities and local jails. Mm-hmm. So it is limited in scope on how many people this can affect because it's only applying on the federal side. Mm-hmm. But still, it's kind of getting the ball rolling for, for more reforms down the road. Absolutely. And there is a sense in which a lot of these reforms have been implemented at the state and local level in a lot of states. And there was a sense in which the federal criminal justice system was behind the times according to a lot of people. And so there is a sense of this both catching up to certain states, but also leading the way for other states and localities that haven't implemented these kinds of reforms. It is a huge bipartisan victory. It passed 87 to 12, but there were a few people opposed to this, primarily led by Senator Tom Cotton. What kind of opposition did they have to this? Senator Tom Cotton has been opposed to these reforms since they came up in the Senate. And he was really the one who was able to push this past the midterms. There was some effort to get a vote on this before the midterms, but largely due to Cotton's insistence, this was pushed till after the midterm elections. And last minute, he came up with a few amendments that were essentially designed to sink the bill that were worded in such a way that would win over some Republicans' support. But ultimately, all three of those amendments ended up failing by pretty large margins, and the bill ended up passing despite his effort. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Every time you create a tool like this, there are going to be positive sides and there's going to be negative sides. And, you know, the job of researchers and the job of the journalists is to think about both of these externalities and explain them. Joining us now is James Vincent, 
reporter for The Verge covering AI and robotics. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence. It's been moving so fast, how refined it's getting. Specifically, we're going to be talking about image generation. NVIDIA has done something really crazy. They just released a new paper, just kind of detailing how far they've come. They had some pictures from 2014. They're just like black and white pictures, very fuzzy, looks like a person, basically. And then on the right side, they have these really high definition pictures of faces with wrinkles and the hair looks really good. In four years, we've come so far with how advanced these pictures are now. So what do we know about what's going on with this? The story here is how quickly we've advanced, but the pictures themselves, they're so weird to think about because they are not, you know, they're not like computer graphics that you might get in a video game or you might get in a film in which there is an individual, you know, an artist or a programmer sort of coding things and like adjusting a cheekbone here and adding a little bit of color there. These are created completely out of whole cloth by an algorithm. And what it does is it's fed in a database of pictures of faces and it sort of combs through these. And this, these databases can be huge. I'm talking millions of pictures of faces. And from them, it learns what a human face looks like. And then it learns how to generate its own. So these photorealistic images, you know, they don't have a human making little tweaks in them. This is completely what we have taught machines. Right. to create by themselves. They released mm. a video showing how the computer system works and you basically take two sources that they base off of and then they combine those images and then they're creating whole new people. And it's funny because, and they're just messing around with the values and they're creating brand new people, different faces, different genders, ages, different mm. races. It is amazing how crazy these minor tweaks create whole new people. That particular technique is called style transfer and that is you used in lots of subfields of AI image generation where you take the characteristics of one image and apply it to the other. Now, in this case, they're taking facial characteristics like skin color and hair color and eye color and all the rest, and they're applying that to new faces. But the sort of the underlying technique, which is uh, uses a type of system called a generative adversarial network or a GAN, as it's sometimes called, that's been around for a long time. So NVIDIA, they've come out with this new research, but they're very much building on a sort of a, a community-wide research process projects. Lots of engineers, lots of researchers around the world are sort of working on this problem of how we create new images using AI. We all know that we, you know, we've been working on this. We want to improve the artificial intelligence. It helps us in so many ways with our phones and our machines being more intuitive to help us. But with these AI generated images, these faces, what's the purpose of these? When you're training these systems, you need a lot of data. If you're looking for lots of data of faces, it's very easy to get. So for example, you have databases that are taken from Flickr, where people have shared photos publicly and, you know, they tend to share photos of friends and family. So that includes a lot of faces. There is a very famous data set, which is of celebrities. Part of it is a practical reason. We just happen to have a lot of data for creating faces. The underlying motivation for improving AI image generation, well, there's lots of those. One of the big ones is that if we can create data which plausibly belongs to these training data sets, then we can use it for stuff like medical research. So say you're training an algorithm them to look through scans like x-rays or something. You might need a lot of training data for it, but if you're looking for a particularly rare condition or a rare sort of tumor, for example, you might not have a lot of data. 
So if you create one of these networks, uh, these generative adversarial networks that can take a lot of data and then create new data from it, it gives you a new way to train these systems. So there are other reasons too to do with how they might be used in the entertainment industry. But this research really has some practical benefits for important stuff like uh, healthcare. I think that's very interesting because a lot of people don't really realize that aspect of it. Everybody's concerned with deep fakes and, uh, mm. you know, people making fake porno and things like that. And you don't really think about the larger impacts, the better stuff that you can accomplish with stuff like this. But, but you know, because it's all over the place. We're already getting fake Instagram influencers that are computer yeah. <laughs> uh, computer generated. That's where everybody's mind goes to initially. How do we spot some of these fakes? They're getting better and better. So how do we differentiate them? I mean, that's a really interesting question. And, and I'd just like to say something to that is, is a term that researchers in the AI community use. And I think it's very important. And it's what they call dual use technology. It's a very, you know, very simple, very straightforward term. But it's just a way of remembering that every time you create a tool like this, there are going to be positive sides and there's going to be negative sides. Right. And, you know, the job of researchers and the job of the journalists is to think about both of these externalities and explain them. So how do you spot fakes? That's a fantastic question. When it comes to faces, there are things that, although these algorithms have the huge data sets of human faces, there are things that they just don't understand as intuitively as humans do. So, for example, they don't quite get facial symmetry. They may do faces, they may create faces where the sort of ears are not at the same height, or the eyes aren't the same distance from the bridge of the nose, or the eyes are different colors. Obviously, some of these traits may exist in humans to a certain degree, but they are <laughs> right. good tells. And there are other issues like teeth. I find teeth are really funny one so AIs, they're not very good at counting when they're doing this sort of image generation. So sometimes they will put in too many teeth or <laughs> they will put in teeth that are sort of blurred and you get a smile, which is just a little bit off-putting somehow. So you're looking for things that are slightly uncanny, but these systems have improved so much. These little bits of uncanniness are getting harder and harder to spot. James Vincent, reporter for The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. There have been so many breaches at this point, so many losses of trust that it's it really does feel like a pattern of behavior. It's not just a one time accident or a one time oversight. Um, as people say in the tech community, it's really a feature and not a bug. Joining us now is Brianna Sachs. BuzzFeed news reporter. We talk a lot about privacy and data on the podcast. I think it's really one of the top stories of the year. So many things came to light, so many companies with data breaches, things like that. Obviously, Facebook has been at the center of this with the whole Cambridge Analytica thing that happened earlier in the year. But data is this billion dollar industry. And to all these companies that can refine that data, use it for advertising and everything, I mean, that's king in this whole digital world right now. And we're learning more about Facebook. They've been at the center of this stuff. They've been apologizing all year, and now they have more stuff on their plate. We're finding out they gave more than 150 companies access to users' personal data again. What do we know about that? Facebook partnered right when it started taking off with major media and tech companies, and we learned that they got actually a lot more access to users' information, private information, than Cambridge Analytica did. So they have a few tiers 
of partners, like, for example, Spotify, Netflix, and the Royal Bank of Canada were able to read, write, and if they wanted to, had the ability to delete people's private messages and see people who were in a message thread. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but it's kind of like when you log into the Spotify or the Netflix app and you're like, oh, yeah, do I want to pair this with my Facebook account? It's kind of you just don't really think about it. You're like, yeah, why not? Makes it so easy. You can share songs, movie recommendations that way. So when users did that, it gave those companies this unfettered access to private information. These companies were considered integrated partners or something like that, where Facebook was helping them build out certain attachments and things like that. So basically, Facebook can grow all over the place. It would get into these other things, the Netflix, the Spotify's, and basically helping increase their user base, all these things. It was intended to benefit everyone. Facebook gets more users. It lifts their advertising revenue. The partner companies acquired features to make their products more attractive because you don't need a new password. You just sign in with your Facebook, all this ease of use kind of stuff. But it's so crazy to think that they gave these companies access to read, write, and as you said, delete possibly private messages. Now, Facebook is saying that nothing bad was done, that none of these companies really did anything to this level. But still, they had the access. I spoke with a spokesperson kind of on background at length about this. And they were very insistent that they have a robust investigation process and many checks and balances and that there was no evidence that companies like misused the data that they've had. Like, you know, I was like, so would someone at Netflix be able to at the time read through this message chain that I maybe have with like my brother? And what would that, it's just shocking to think about. But, you know, BlackBerry, which worked with Facebook, built its app and thus had access to people's information, like told the times that it had was never audited while, you know, it was partnered with Facebook. So that's the question is, they say that they were monitoring this, but like so many partners had access and like tons of people. So how do you really know is that's kind of the big concern. Facebook, for their part, has never sold user data, but they did the next best thing, which was partnering with all these other companies and giving them the access and everybody kind of grows together in that way. What else has Facebook been saying as a response to this? What are they changing? What have they implemented? Because as we said at the beginning, They've been apologizing all year for this stuff. The 2014-2015 period that they cut these partnerships and they disabled these companies from having access to people's information. But as the, the Times reported some of these partnerships, they still had access to stuff as recent as 2017. Facebook said in a statement that they're really still working on regaining people's trust and they understand that people's information requires stronger teams and better technology and protecting it is the utmost priority. But it just keeps their actions speak differently. Everything seems to fall flat because... It just keeps happening in so many different forms. The trouble is that privacy of your data is so hard to control. Every platform has a different policy. A lot of times as a consumer, you don't understand it. The privacy policy pages are so long. You just kind of like forget it. I'm just going to sign up and use it because I want to use it. And it's just so hard to control or and understand it, really. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is they said in a follow up email to us that they relied on users and others to identify potential violations of these partnerships. So it was kind of also placing like the responsibility on us. And like you're like, I, I don't even really know, like at the time, what it meant to log into Facebook with my Spotify or if I was using Bing or I have a Yahoo account and letting Yahoo pair with my Facebook account. It, so it was just 
it's kind of an interesting thing to be like, okay, well, I, at the like 2010, 2014, had thought I was being violated. I could tell Facebook, but how do you even know you are being violated? Right. Like, what do you look for? They'll make a public announcement. Hey, we have a new partnership, but they don't tell you what the uh, data arrangements are. So you're never going to know. Interesting argument on their part too. Like, this is like kind of how they're defending themselves is they were explaining that, well, you were just giving these companies the ability to build their own Facebook app. We were helping them. So it's, it's easier for users to use Facebook on a BlackBerry or on a Bing. And so it's just like they were kind of using Facebook like normal. But so right. they, that's how like, kind of Facebook defense here. And all these other companies, Netflix, Spotify, I mean, Microsoft, they've all said the same thing, kind of throwing it back on Facebook saying, hey, that's just the way it worked. We didn't do anything bad with the data. So once again, Facebook seemed to have stepped in it. We'll see what happens next year and how they really change what's going on with uh, all of this data privacy stuff. Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed News reporter. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.